Hi folks, this is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a cross-dresser and that Thurgood Marshall knew jiu-jitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, have we got a podcast for you. Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy. Sound check. Sound check. What is that? Hey, Brian, open the door. Oh my god. Oh my god, David, what are you doing here? Oh my god, David, where have you been? It's been it's been two months. What year is it? Wait, wait, what year is it? It's 2013. 2013. Calm down. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. Just tell us what happened. Okay, a little, okay. Little, little too deep. Okay, okay, okay. So you remember how the last time I was here, I said, "Hey, I have to use the potty." Yeah. And so I went out back to your really awesome porta potty, which I thought was very clever. Whoa, 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 That's whoa, whoa. a police box, and I thought it was great. Oh so I go inside, and it's very much—it's a lot bigger on the inside than it seems. And so I go inside, and I hit a button. I don't know how I hit a button, and when I walk outside after I'm all done, which I'm gonna have to clean up later. I'm sorry. I walk outside, and I see Bigfoot walking around. I say. What is going on? And then Bigfoot does that. He punches me in the face. And then I say, I don't want any of that, Mr. Bigfoot. So I run back into the, the, the porta potty thingamabob. And then I do something else. Now I'm in Scotland. There's a man wearing a skirt. And there's a giant lizard in the water. I don't know what's going on. She's very nice, though. She's very, very nice. And what's been two months for you has literally been... 20 seconds of my life and it has been cold and hard I don't know what happened wait 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 wait. (sighs) David what are you trying to tell me I need water that you went to the bathroom in my TARDIS yeah I'm sorry about that God Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. How you doing, sir? I am extremely happy. Me too. Okay, you go first, and I'll tell you why. I'm extremely happy. I'm just happy because we're doing a podcast, but okay. Okay, well, I mean, I'm happy for that reason, too. But Game of Thrones is back on. Oh, yeah. I don't have HBO. That's okay, because I do, and I watch it, and that's enough for me. So, let me tell you why I am excited about Game of Thrones. Go on. Because normally when I watch a show on TV, I pick it to pieces, trying to check for any historical inaccuracies that I can find. Mm-hmm. And because Game of Thrones is completely and totally fictitious, uh, I'm totally fine with it. It doesn't bother me. Nor should it, because there's no reason for it to be historically accurate. Exactly. That's well, my good. point. I'm glad we agree with that. Well, I'm glad we came to this decision. Yeah, me too. All right, I feel much better now. I'm good. glad there was an entire discussion about that. <laughs> Shh, we're not ready to introduce you yet. Oh, sorry. You sit quietly. Okay. Shh. So, Brian, let's get to our listener feedback, shall we? Okay. Uh, again, Melissa, one of our longtime listeners, and by long time, I mean she's been listening for the whole six months that we've been doing the podcast. Hey, 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 hey. Seven months. Sorry, seven months. She, uh, she wanted to give us a shout out about the past couple episodes that we've done. She's really enjoyed them, uh, even our uh, April Fool's episode. Oh, awesome. And we heard your feedback. I know I'd asked for it in the last episode, so thank you for giving the feedback. Uh, not just Melissa, but several other of our listeners who really enjoyed uh, all of our uh, fake factoids there, uh, including one in particular, my Aunt Teresa. 
who I know is listening because she is now, I believe, our number one fan. She just recently found out about the podcast. We had dinner a little while ago, and I told her about it, downloaded a few episodes on her uh, iPod. And she, uh, she's gone nuts for it. She absolutely loves it. So, Aunt Teresa, thank you for listening. Wanted to give you a, uh, a formal shout-out on, uh, on the show here. And, uh, and yeah. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention about Melissa. She had a really great idea. She thought it would be really great if we kind of explored the history of sexuality and sex in general and how it influences cultures and how it's part of the world as we know it. And I thought that would be a really interesting episode to do at some point in the future. I'm not quite sure when. But uh, we would have to kind of sit down and, and you know, put out uh, a game plan for it. But uh, I think it would be interesting. It would definitely be interesting. I think that's yeah. the best word I can think of it. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, listeners. Why don't you help us build this episode out a little bit? So Melissa's help us lay the foundation. Why don't you give us listener feedback and let us know kind of what the, uh, the bulk of the episode you'd like it to be? We've never done that before. Let's give it a try. I think that's reasonable, yeah. Yeah, so listeners, give us some feedback. Let us know what aspects of sex and sexuality you want us to kind of cover on a future episode, and we will uh, we'll build it custom order to, uh, to your requests. So thank you, Melissa, for giving us the foundation for that. I think that'll be pretty cool. Hey, kind of a, a big thing going on right now for Nerdonomy, anyhow. Um, the fact that Jurassic Park just came out in 3D. Yes, which, yes, but the other big thing. Oh. David is back. Hi. Yay. Hello. So for our listeners who maybe have just kind of come to the podcast recently to Nerds on History, uh, David is, of course, one of our co-hosts on Nerds on Film. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you've been on a little bit of a temporary hiatus for the past couple of months because you have been working on a really great project. Yeah, I, um, I took about two and a half months off and I had written a small short screenplay just for fun and i had an opportunity to where i could actually get it produced uh for a local high school and so we have filmed it we are kind of in the last stages of editing it and it will be on nerdonomy.com on april 19th wow we got our first world premiere First release date, everybody. Cool. Yeah, so it's going to be fun. It's uh, it's it's a short, short, short film, but it's a bunch of high school kids. They did a great job. Um, I'm really proud of it, and I'm ready to show it to uh, to my Nerdonomy family and to the Nerdonomy family abroad, being you guys, the listeners. For those of you that are dedicated to us, like go for it. And if you're new to us, check it out. One of the many great things we offer at Nerdonomy.com. Awesome. I <coughs> read David's script. What was it? It, you started writing it back in September, was it? Yeah, it was end of summer last year. Yeah, right around the time Nerdonomy actually launched. And it was a very charming little story. It was very much a callback to the teen movies that we watched in the late 90s. Yeah. And uh, it's a really lovely short film that calls back to all those moments that we like from Can't Hardly Wait or from... Mm-hmm. Uh, what was another one that you you referenced? Um, Can't Hardly Wait is the biggest one because I'm just in love with that movie. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, like I guess ten things I hate about you and mm, sure. Um, just the overall ideas, um, just that unrequited high school love and how important it is and just how grand it can be, even though even though it's really not in the grand scheme of things. But in high school, everything seems to be so much more epic than it actually should be. Whoa, 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 whoa. I met my wife in high school. Which there are some great gems that come out of that. Thank you. Somebody should make a movie about us. Actually, there is a couple from my high school who they started dating my junior year. Mm -hmm. And they got married 
uh, I would say about five, six years ago, and they're still together. So oh, wow. they've Good been together for, for over ten years. Yeah. Huzzah to them. Yeah. It actually mimics your story quite a bit now that yeah. I think about it. Martha and I Martha was fifteen, I was sixteen, and we got married just a couple years out of high school. And we've been, get, been together coming up on eleven years. Wow. Yeah, we'll be having our eleven year anniversary in July. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, anyhow, enough about our personal lives. Well, speaking of unrequited love, let's talk about Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, let's talk about the, the giant squid first, because that's what really got Bigfoot us here, right? <laughs> Now, David, yeah. uh, one of the last, I think it was one of the last episodes that you and I did together of Nerds on Film, mm-hmm. back in, I want to say, uh, January-ish. Yeah. Right before you had left. Yeah. We, we kind of finished it, and we were talking about, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if we did a podcast on Bigfoot and Bigfoot-like creatures, cryptids, mm-hmm, cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. Just kind of thought, oh yeah, could we could we do it from kind of a historical spin? And I think we totally can. And we've been just sitting on this on this idea, waiting for it because it's really cool. And Brian and I have had some time to think about it. So we're so happy that you're back now. Yay! And now we can do the episode because <clears throat> we wanted you to be a part of it. Oh, awesome! Well, thank you guys for waiting. Yeah, and the thing that kind of spurred that conversation was that giant squid documentary that was coming up uh, mm-hmm. around that time, late January. And uh, you and I just kind of started chatting about it. We thought, hey, well, let's just do a whole episode on it. Of course, not just the giant squid. That was for the Discovery Channel. They did a whole episode on it. But we will right. do some other stuff as well. Right. And so for the listeners who don't quite understand, why does the giant squid qualify as cryptozoology? Well, let's define cryptozoology real quick, right? Okay. So what is a cryptid? Well, the word cryptid comes from the Greek word crypto, meaning to hide. Okay. And so those who are cryptozoologists are people who are looking at animals that either existed at one point and have now been known to be extinct, or animals that are thought to have inspired myth. And the myth of legendary creatures and monsters and things like that that could actually have a scientific basis. That could okay. be real animals that are perhaps misidentified within this myth or perhaps themselves are unknown species to science. Right. And so they examine what those things could be and try to you know, gather up scientific evidence to move them out of that list of cryptids and bring them into the list of scientifically proven biological creatures okay gotcha okay and you know cryptozoology kind of gets a bit of a bad name you know people think of unicorns and leprechauns and stuff like that and kind of throw that into cryptozoology but for those who actually take it seriously those who themselves are zoologists and biologists who have spent you know careers understanding animals and the way that they work in in nature when they choose to take on a field like this, they, they take it very seriously. So, you know, I want to give them respect, even though I will admit <laughs> a lot of the so-called cryptids that are on this list that uh, that is out there are pretty far-fetched. And that's okay. They're meant to be. They're meant to be legends that perhaps were inspired by some truth. Mm-hmm. Finding that truth is what it's all about. Right. And the giant squid is a great example of this. This is something that scientifically is now known to us, but for many, many years was considered to be total myth. In fact, up until, I would say, a decade ago, it was considered largely a myth still, right? Well, that's not entirely true. We They had found remains of giant squid going back at least 100 years. But we'd never seen one. But we'd never seen a live one in the wild 
full up, got a chance to really see everything on it. We've photographed and videotaped pieces, right? So like tentacles, for example. Uh, and those tend to be the, the longest, largest part of the giant squid, right? So those are the part that can be voluntarily detached or ripped off the animal rather easily. And those sometimes have been caught in fishermen's nets. They have been found washed up on the beach. Mm -hmm. And obviously when people look at them, they go, oh my God, you know, we know what this is. How giant is this creature? Yeah, they want to know exactly how big it is. Uh, but up till recently, one has never really been photographed or videotaped in the wild. And that was what that whole documentary that we were watching was all about, right? Mm -hmm. If you didn't get a chance to see it, I'm sure you can find it out there. If it hasn't ended up on, you know, Netflix, it's probably on Hulu or maybe it's on like on demand on, you know, Comcast cable or whatever, right? Right. Uh, but it was called Monster Squid, The Giant is Real. And, you know, the name kind of says it all right there, right? It is real. Because myths surrounding giant squids have been around for hundreds of years. The most famous example I know of is, of course, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, when the giant squid attacks the Nautilus. Release the Kraken! Or release the Kraken, right? Yeah. From either Clash of the Titans or Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Right. It's been around in popular culture and in myth for a very long time. You know, uh, sailors, a couple hundred years ago very likely encountered some of these out in the wild, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or saw a squid and thought, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if one of these was the length of our boat? Uh, it turns out, however, <laughs> they are actually about the length of a boat. Way to go, Steve. You totally jinxed it. <laughs> <laughs> God, we can't take you on any sea voyages. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I just like get really excited. <laughs> you are just a bad luck magnet. <laughs> well, all those in favor of throwing Steve over the boat why can't say, you just say like, Why can't you just say, it really suck if we got attacked by mermaids? That'd just be awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, but no. Why can't you say, like, oh, I really wish that lamb would show up since we're running out of food and our rations are getting low? <laughs> like, God. Such a pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to me, the giant squid is uh, kind of proof that maybe, just maybe, some of these other legends and stories out there might actually have a grain of truth behind them. The Michael Crichton was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I don't think a giant squid has ever sunk a boat. I don't know this for sure. I think the, the most damage a giant squid has probably ever done is against a sperm whale. And we think that to the sperm whale, the giant squid is dinner. It's food. Uh, and we know this because some sperm whales have been observed with enormous sucker marks stuck on their face from the, the teeth, if you will, suckers that the, the squid has. And so obviously they've gotten in some sort of battle, some sort of fight, uh, very, very deep down where the pressure is so intense that only creatures like the giant squid or the sperm whale can really exist. And uh, of course the sperm whale can then come right back up even after he's eaten the giant squid. And we can see the, the marks of those battles left behind. And so we knew this was out there. The idea was, well, how do we actually find it? How do we bring it to us so that we can film it? And there have been many attempts over about the past decade or so to try to make that happen. And one of the leading individuals behind this is Suname Kubadara. And I apologize if I'm saying this wrong. It's, it's possible that I'm mispronouncing it. But uh, he's been kind of a, a leading force behind this. And he was kind of the star of the show. Uh, that they did on Discovery Channel. There was a lot of other players there, and it was kind of funny because it was almost like they were competing with each other in kind of reality TV style to see whose method and idea would attract the giant squid to them. And they all got in these submersibles, and they went down very, very low, you know, very far down, I should say, uh, and they all tried different ideas. Uh, one of the scientists was using uh, fluorescence and um, 
you know, LED lights and what have you to create this this bioluminescence that squids actually use to kind of communicate, to pull them in and attract them, essentially be like, you know, sexually appealing. This is like the equivalent of putting on a, a squid nighty or something to that effect. <laughs> That's um, a lovely image. <laughs> There's the episode title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one kind of made this puree of squid and just kind of squirted it out into the ocean to try and attract them. And both of the other methods got squids to come in. Wait, do squids, do they eat each, do they eat their own? Yeah. Large squids will eat the smaller ones. Interesting. Yeah. And by smaller ones, I still mean giant freaking squids. You know, they're like eight feet long, but they will, the, the giant ones will eat them. And if you think about it, the squids, if that's what's available to eat down at those depths. They'll take it, yeah. They're not going to be picky. They're going to eat it. Finally, uh, oh, Mr. Kubadera. So fat. I'm eating one of my own. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad, but it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. Kubadara goes ahead, and he uses a very similar method to one of the other guys, and he just puts out a giant, you know, not a giant, but a great big squid. I think it was a Humboldt squid, and puts it out there as bait, and he sits there patiently, and he waits. And he didn't have a lot of time left, right? The, the mission was running out of time, running out of money. And he's sitting there and he's just wishing. He's thinking in his head, oh my God, I wish I would just see a giant squid. And finally, out of nowhere, this freaking giant squid comes out of there and just starts chowing down on his little brother. And he can't believe his eyes. It's really cool to watch the documentary because you can see him, you know, it, it seems a little reality TV show us in a sense, but he is super emotional. He's, these are his real emotions being videotaped. His life's work right in front of him. And not only does it just hang around, it hangs around for almost 20 minutes. So he gets a chance to just film it, examine it, see it. They put the big old floodlights on after a little while so they can get some really good footage. And it stays there and it lets them videotape it. And it proves to the world that this creature that was once myth is a real thing. And it was pretty cool to watch. I'm not going to lie. That would frighten me to no end. Because it's like David and Goliath. Like, no pun intended. Because you have this itty bitty submersible and then this skyscraper giant squid with tentacles i would be frightened now this was a an adolescent i think so it was something like 10 feet in length that's still a really gigantic squid and they think that they grow to be about the size of a bus with the tentacles included wow so some of them could be 20 feet some of them might even be larger as as large as 30 feet so we're talking about just massive massive animals i've always wondered what's down at the bottom of the sea you know and that's what is it what is the 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 actual percentage where the ocean is what 98 percent of the earth is is ocean really or if you include it? like the volume of the ocean mm-hmm. it, it and greatly we, out and we land. and yeah. we only know maybe a percent of what the ocean yeah has to offer us a small mean, fraction of it. I mean, there has got to be. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, oh, by the way, there's an entire city down there, and it's not Atlantis, it's another city that we had no idea was down there. I'd be like, oh, okay, well, I believe it. <laughs> I mean, how would we not know? You know what I mean? I'm willing to go with you up to Atlantis. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not saying Atlantis is real. What I'm saying, though, is that there's just so much that is unknown about sure. that area that. To think that, oh, all we have are just carp and, you know, tilapia and giant squids. Like, there are things down there that we have no idea and we can only fathom in dreams and in Hollywood that are living down in that ocean right now. Let me put it to you this way. We know more about the expansive universe around us outside of our atmosphere than we know about what's in the oceans. Wow. That seems so wrong. (laughs) 
But it's I, true. It, it's it, it's a remarkable fact. Well, there's also some limitations to go with that because the pressure of the ocean goes gets so great, we have no vessels that can handle that. Right. Right? And but, we don't even know if there are creatures that can survive in that habitat naturally. But we, but we do. We know that the giant squid can go deeper than our deepest submersible can go. Okay. Well, fair enough. And that's crazy. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a point where life as we know it must kind of change dramatically to be able to survive in those in those conditions and we do know that in some extent we know that life can exist in thermal events at the bottom of the ocean that are making heat that are thousands and thousands of degrees in temperature yet life is still able to survive there that's pretty crazy too so why not have some of these perhaps a little bit less believable things actually exist let's explore some of the evidence shall we i'm on board (laughs) we need some theme music to go with it i think Sean, can you put some adventurous theme music as we move into? I was thinking more like X Files, but okay. adventurous sounds fine too. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Sean, go from adventurous into wait for it, wait for it, X Files. Very good, thank you, Sean. Okay, moving on. Uh, when we're talking about the giant squid as being one of those real cryptids, right? Let's talk about another real cryptid. I bet you won't guess what it is, but it starts with a G, and it ends with Orilla. Uh, <laughs> Gangnam Style Orilla? <laughs> <laughs> Whoopum, Gangnam Style. <laughs> you were telling me this a little style. while ago. I was kind of shocked to learn this, that you're saying that the gorilla, the gorilla that we know of as the largest ape in the world, was in fact for many years, many centuries a mythical creature believed to be a mythical creature pretty much yeah i mean the the local tribes people knew of its existence right they knew that it was there but they considered it to be not unlike uh, another different tribe tribal person right so they, they didn't really consider it to be an animal they considered it and respected it as its own kind of separate tribe of wild people uh, that were uncivilized compared to them, right? So they left them alone because they thought maybe that might be dangerous. And so mm-hmm. these these myths around these wild people of the jungle, obviously you can imagine as Europeans kind of moved into Africa and, you know, s- set up colonies and, and, you know, did all the wars and all the fun things that they were doing in Africa at the time, would be really interested in, in what they've heard about. And right. so they started sending little by little expeditions into the jungles. And for a while, they really couldn't identify anything up until around the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, and that's when the first gorillas were actually viewed by Europeans. And so what had been myth for a long time for people now was a reality. And now it's something that we look at, you know, we see in zoos, we see on television, we see, you know, Jane Goodall rolling around in the grass with them, you know. I will say that I have gone to the San Francisco Zoo. I've even gone to the Oakland Zoo. And the gorilla exhibit is always the most hauntingly beautiful exhibit to stare at the gorilla as it eats and as it just sits there because of its because of so many similarities between that and humans, right? Because I think the thing that that connects the two of them is or that, that separates us is like one gene that really is what differentiates it's us. It's a few more than that. Few, but yes, yeah, but it's I mean, very it's a very little. small amount yeah, of genes. Exactly. And just to see that process of them sitting upright, you can tell that they have this this cognitive ability, that they are intelligent, they are fast, they are very much like humans in every sense except for a few little a few little bits. And it's just so it's just so beautiful to look at it and be like, wow, we are literally in the same carpool lane and we should just <laughs> It's just, a, it's just frightening. 
Well, you know, my wife and I, over the years, we've been to the zoo many times, especially since we've had children. And that is the spot, hands down, every single time my wife cries at the zoo. Every single time. I'm with, I'm with, I'm with Martha. I can completely understand yeah, why. she's always moved to tears. And I'm always definitely kind of transfixed by what I'm seeing. It's always an amazing thing. And especially to see the family units and the way that they interact with each other and the way that they care for their young. Because the baby was born not that long ago, just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And my, my wife and I and the kids at the time were... I want to say um, four and two, I think. Uh, we went there when the baby was a couple of months old. It was finally out and able to run around a little bit. And the girls just went nuts. They thought it was the most amazing thing. And then I look around and the girls are pretty much doing the exact same thing the little baby girl is doing. So they're, they're all running around <laughs> causing havoc too. And yeah, you realize they are very close to us. Well, you know, you bring up gorillas and there's uh, we've mentioned the website Listverse before they come up with these very interesting lists we did like the list of the weirdest jobs in history we use yeah. that as a basis for one of our episodes uh, we use list verse for the cannibalism episode as well which david was also a star on that's true the cannibal episode yeah, yeah that was fun what's eating him right there is one about 10 animals that used to be mythical and gorilla is number 10 on the list yeah huh. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of these. I'm like, huh, this is an animal that Eric wants to bring up on the episode. But the one that I was very interested to know was the giant panda. Yeah. For a long time, was considered a myth. It was illustrated in Chinese myths, but wasn't actually seen until 1869 by a French missionary named Armand David while going through the mountains. Um, he sent the skin to Europe, but it was never actually depicted or seen alive until 1916. By Europeans, that is. By Europeans, though, right. yes. But nevertheless, it was considered a creature that was not seen all that much. Sure. In I mean, culture. I don't believe, and I could be wrong with this, but I don't believe that uh, any pandas were being brought back into Chinese cities or towns in, as a type of zoo attraction, right? So most people who never got a chance to travel that far out into the wilderness probably never saw a panda. So to them, even the people living in China at the time would have been considered a myth as well. well right. Well, there's no need too because these are, animals are largely docile and they're vegetarian so they're not any threat mm-hmm. they're the only bears i know of that are actually truly vegetarian because most bears are like omnivorous they'll they'll right. live on berries but they mostly if they can have meat they'll pick it these live i mean they live off of bamboo basically you know it's um it's well don't you find it fascinating that just because we're not able to see it but we hear about it that we instantly think of it as being this mythical creature that must just be a word of mouth situation that it must just be something that some crazy person thought up and now it's just become this folklore and it's just become this story that we tell over and over again i might get some flack for this but i think a lot of that has to do with european perceptions at the time of the people that they were actually interacting with and meeting saying oh well these folks they can't possibly be telling the truth. They're creating some sort of, you know, ridiculous myth. Whereas <laughs> a bear that has white and black fur? Impossible, no. <laughs> but, of course, to the people who are living there, who maybe they've never even seen it before, but they've heard so many stories of it, I'm sure to them they, they knew it was a real thing. Hmm. Of course. Cause, well, I'm looking on this list, and I'm seeing some animals who are like, huh, I've never heard of them before, but also was like, really? These were mythical at one point? So, Eric, I'd like to hear your perspective on this. Another G animal. That was considered mythical at one point. Goat. Goose. The giraffe. Say what? Really? Yeah, according to this, I'll read it from the uh, sure. from the segment. Yes, the uber-famous giraffe was once a mythical animal. We have to admit that if we didn't know giraffes and someone showed us a picture of one, we would have trouble to believe its existence. Just take a look at them. They are 
weird looking animals. Giraffes are relatively familiar to the ancient Egyptians. That's very true, thanks to Hapshatsut. Uh, even though they were not native to Egypt, the pharaoh Ramesses II is said to have kept a giraffe, among other exotic pets, in his private zoo. Hapshatsut did it first. Well done. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> the Greeks, on the other hand, By the way, thought author, you're that wrong. the giraffe is a legendary beast, a uh, camelopod, or a camelopard, which was said to be the result of the mating of a camel and a leopard. <laughs> Even today, the giraffe's scientific name, Giraffa camelopardalus, pays tribute to this legend. In fact, giraffes are in the same genus as antelope, believe it or not. Interesting. Um, Interesting. That part actually I knew without having to look at the. the Isn't that why they the have the little nub-like horns on Indeed, the top of the head? Indeed, if you look at the formation of their heads, actually their heads are not that far. Well, they are far removed because of the neck, but they're not that far removed phenotypically from from an antelope. So, um, so what you're trying to tell me is the ancient Egyptians got it right. Excellent. Right now, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to skip a couple on this list because I think you have them written down. But one is also the python, also very interesting. The komodo dragon shows up on the list as well. And the one that was number one, I was kind of fascinated by, the tiger was at one point considered a mythical. But this is, we're talking um, in the ancient world. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because in the state that the tigers are in currently, wild tigers, mm-hmm. they're very close to becoming a mythical creature again. Oh, because they're, clo- they're an endangered species. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, this is also to the Greeks. Interesting how a lot of this is to the Greeks. Because the Greeks had the Lion's Gate, right? The, there was the gate that they believe it was the city for city of Agamemnon. Correct me on that, if I'm not mistaken. But they, the Greeks had never seen a lion either. They just knew that they existed, and they'd never seen a tiger. But they've heard of these these creatures because they had done trade with the Indians. So um, and ancient Egyptians, and and ancient Egyptians. Yes, Sorry. indeed. <laughs> Thank you. I'll get it right, Brian. <laughs> All roads lead to Egypt. Thank you. He's the expert. I'm the straight man. Come on. <laughs> Jesus. And I'm the guest. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, um, just a really interesting list. You guys can look it up on Listverse, 10 animals that used to be considered mythical. And uh, there's a couple more that Eric's going to talk about, I think, that are really, really What are you looking unusual. at there, Eric? That one's very interesting looking. That one would be? The okapi. The okapi. It looks like a weird zebra. It does kind of, doesn't it? It has like the bottom half stripes of a zebra, but then the top portion looks almost a little bit more giraffe-like, and it actually belongs to that same genus of giraffe. Interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. And for quite a while, it was thought to simply be myth. Again, found in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, And this is, of course, also where the gorilla was first seen in the wild by Europeans. And this animal, which, you know, people thought, this must be ridiculous. Okay. I, it's heard, got the bottom half of a, of a zebra, but it's got the top half of a small pygmy giraffe. I find this interesting because the nickname was the African Unicorn, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. It, well, it's little zebra-like, but the stripes are horizontal, and the zebra stripes are vertical, and that's to prov- so it blends in with grassland to be right. less susceptible to lions. So this guy just does it half as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is the very first kind of popular press that was covering it was by uh, Henry Morton Stanley's journals in 1887. So it's really pretty recent in terms of identifying right. animals. Uh, and they hadn't even really found uh, the remains of one up until about 1901 when it became kind of this great big uh, fanfare surrounding it that, you know, here is this, again, legendary creature. Here is something that was local myth that people had seen but never really proven and now here it is existing in the real 
It's interesting um, reading up on the the uh, the okapi and um, and its characteristics and behavior, and how it is stating that it, its tongue is long enough to where it can wash its eyelids and clean its ears. I can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can. I don't. <laughs> But I, I could do that. Only at parties, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's my party trick. <laughs> Is that how you picked up Martha? You were like, hey, um... You want to see something? You want to see something awesome? <laughs> <laughs> and then yes. he says, no, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Thank you. Mar- do my ears, too. Don't worry. It's awesome. Thankfully, Martha is a fan of carnival shows. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh what I also find interesting is the okapi was also known to the ancient Egyptians through trade routes. They have found okapi. The first actual depictions of them come from uh, ancient Egyptian engravings. I, I know this is not true, but I just think it's funny that, like, the Egyptians knew it all along. The Greeks were just like, we don't know. It's all myths to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's just and, like, like, seriously, guys. And then on. when it came to history, which one ended up being the one more favored? Oh, it's what the Greeks wrote down, not what the Egyptians wrote down. We didn't care what the Egyptians thought until way, way later, until the late part of the <laughs> second millennia. Oh, wait, those hieroglyphics. I know you're getting a little incensed by that. I didn't mean that intentionally. It's okay. It's not your fault. I'm, I'm just angry with history. <laughs> hey, but the, okay, but, on. but the Egyptians are getting their, are getting their dues. Uh, if this show has anything to do with it, you're damn right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about um, the one that I think cryptozoologists and fans who support the idea of cryptids tout as being the Holy Grail? Of cryptids, and I'm not talking about Bigfoot. That hasn't been proven yet, right? So wait, 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 yet. wait. I read the Weekly World News. They've got tons of pictures of Bigfoot. They've even shaved him, <laughs> only on the face area, <laughs> right? And, and he is ugly, and he's always found on beaches. <laughs> he is, and it's usually in Italy. Exactly. Yeah. What's yeah. your point, Eric? <laughs> have you seen Have you seen him wear, wear a speedo? It is hideous. <laughs> So what you're saying is that Bigfoot is really just a six-foot-tall, very hairy Italian man? He may be I my godfather. On <laughs> <laughs> he may be you, actually, Brian. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, the Moriarty family happens to have a, a werewolf gene. We've talked about this on the show before. We did, yeah. yeah. Well, it's also a joke that if we don't manscape enough and we just kind of go into our letter nature take hold, we might be mistaken for, for Bigfoot, which is why you will never find us in the Canadian wilderness because yeah. we you never we don't want to take any chances or shrubbery <laughs> or shrubbery for that and, matter. And you know, hedge I'm, trimmers are dangerous. I'm feeling that this conversation is leading to the next Nerdonomy video of Brian <laughs> like just in someone's backyard, just like it's, just, it's me just <laughs> looking. <laughs> Brian with his arms just kind of swinging back and forth, turns his head just halfway around, and looks back and forth. Yeah, because of course Bigfoot's always going to look right into the camera right. whenever he's being photographed. <laughs> I, well, if you think about it, I think the Bigfoots, they all communicate. They, they tweet with each other. They, you know, they tweet with each other. Yeah, yeah but they, 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 they use they actual keep... birds to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John's having a really bad day. <laughs> there was some Discovery Channel commercial for one of their shows. I can't remember what it was, but they had they'd gotten a guy in a Bigfoot suit, a really good Bigfoot suit with the makeup. And he, they they cast him as like some French Canadian. And, and it was just, it was one of the funniest depictions <laughs> Of Bigfoot, I think, since Harry and the Hendersons that, that we've seen. Because we've never seen a Bigfoot talk before. Yeah. And uh, and they did cut the shots of him, like, walking with those I saw arms straight yeah. and, like, looking at the camera the whole time. <laughs> with a very <laughs> deadpan look. <laughs> so since we're not talking about Bigfoot, what, Sorry. Which, uh, which cryptid are you referring to? I am referring to the coelacanth. <gasps> coelacanth, coelacanth. What's the coelacanth? So the coelacanth is this scary, god-awful-looking fish. That's the Holy Grail? 
In a way. And let me explain why. The Loch Ness Monster's not the Holy Grail? That's the Holy Grail? You want to know when the last time I feel ripped this... off. I'm sorry. Well, hold on. Oh. <laughs> this is one that has been proven to be real. Right? So it's the Holy Grail in the sense... Maybe Holy Grail's a bad term. Sorry, Brian. Yeah. Get your metaphors right. God. Okay. <laughs> it is the... Uh... Qua- hey, simmer down, you two. <laughs> <laughs> it is the particular cryptid that people look to as being proof that, hey, maybe Bigfoot or a Loch Ness Monster or whatever could be real because guess what this is the little fish that could this fish was thought to have gone extinct when back during the cretaceous period so we're talking just after 65 million years ago yeah just after the meteor shower that destroyed the dinosaurs right so a meteor or a comet for those of you who don't know struck the earth quite possibly down in the yucatan peninsula and it put all this lovely ejecta up into the atmosphere which blocked out the sun and this was a meteor that was only the size of new york city i believe only the size of New York City. You know the one that just you know crashed in Russia recently? Yeah. That was only the size of probably, I don't know, a cooler. <laughs> right. Well, that's the point I'm getting at. Is something even that size can have a massive global yeah. impact. That's well, what I was trying to get. If, like, if cooler-sized whole... ones have that kind of impact. Well, guys, New York we all City saw size. deep impact in Armageddon. Well, that's what right. I'm saying. Like In, in Armageddon, right. it was the size of Texas, right? If that was, if that was really the case... We'd be totally screwed. No <laughs> chance. It's just like, you know what, guys? The president throws his hands up in the air. You know, just drink and have as much sex as you want. It's all over in three weeks anyway. This can't, is it. Can't we? It sounds like the last few weeks of college. <laughs> well, maybe I got the two confused. Yeah, I think you got the two confused. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the point is that even through that cataclysmic event, this little fishy guy managed to survive but of course we didn't know that we had assumed that it had perished along with the dinosaurs and it didn't so good for us so we we had assumed because we found fossils of it we never seen a live one very much like the giant squid but we found it in its natural habitat and therefore the world was shocked so who found so how did we find a live version of it well it's interesting because the fossil version right so the first fossilized remains hadn't been discovered until 1839 Okay. So it's pretty new on the fossil record in terms of identification, right? It's been around for a really long time. Okay. Okay. So this goes back to about the time when paleontology was really taking form. So it's kind of a youngin' when it comes to these legendary creatures. Yeah, in terms of kind of understanding who it is and where it is and where it came from in history. Okay. Now, in 1938, however, that's when the very first live specimen had been discovered. Wow. Okay. 1938. So it was about 100 years from when they first found the... Did it say how? Was someone just fishing? It was discovered by fishermen in Indonesia. And when it had come to the attention of, you know, naturalists in the area there who understood what the fossil was and took one look at it and said, oh, my God, this should not be here. There is no way that this should still be alive. Then we we had our understanding that this had not gone extinct. Uh, But when they looked at it, they were astonished because they had expected maybe to find some traits of it that looked very familiar to its ancient ancestor. But instead, what they found is, much like they do with crocodiles, a living fossil, quote-unquote living fossil. It is essentially the exact same fish that it was 65 million years ago. Just like crocodiles. Crocodiles are dinosaurs. They came to us, again, surviving the extinction period, uh, the K1 extinction event, in the Cretaceous period, and they're still around, and they have more or less not changed in 65 million years. I have this feeling that, like, all of these these water-bound dinosaurs that have survived, 
can you imagine if they had like a friend dinosaur that was on land? They're like, you know what? Something bad's coming. I'm just going to go into the water. It's like, <laughs> you're crazy, man. Nothing's going to happen. It's like, all right, John, you, you take your life into your own hands. So we'll see who lives. <laughs> like 65 million later, he comes up. He goes, well, I was right. <laughs> I just like that. Both the dinosaurs and Bigfoots have been named John at yeah. this point. <laughs> well, in, like in, in my uh, wheelhouse of joke names, John is literally the easiest one. Oh, okay. Everybody's right. John. Everyone's John. Okay. Before I knew Brian, I would you know make jokes where he was the central focus or like the man talking to the, the butt of the joke. John. <laughs> Thanks. I'm not saying you were the butt of the joke. I was saying you were the one that was like, hey, John. Like, oh, the, the straight man. Yeah, the straight gotcha. man. Always a straight man. So, um, speaking of crocodiles, can I take a second to mention the Komodo dragon a little bit? Sure, let's talk about him. Again, I'm quoting from this verse. It is sometimes said that Komodo dragons were discovered by a downed pilot from World War I who swam to a remote island in Indonesia, interesting parallel here, mm -hmm. and reported seeing that giant reptiles in the island's coasts. Unfortunately, no one believed him. Other versions say that the dragons had already been reported before, and that eventually the rumors of land crocodiles and prehistoric monsters roaming Komodo and the nearby islands became too persistent to be ignored. And in 1910, a Dutch lieutenant decided to go to the island and get evidence of the creature's existence. He succeeded and uh, sent a photo of the skin of the gigantic lizard to Bogor, Java, where the director of the Zoological Museum described it formally for the first time. And it was not until about another 16 years later, 1926, when a much-publicized expedition to Komodo resulted in the capture of two live specimens. This expedition inspired one of the most famous movies of all time, King Kong, oh. which was also about prehistoric animals found in a remote island. See, it's so funny. I was going to say Gone with the Wind. <laughs> well, it's Especially interesting because... Especially my dragon, he, I don't give a damn. When you think about it, <laughs> think about it. Like, the gorilla was a mythical creature, too, right? So these are all mythical creatures that were shown on this remote island untouched by time. Kind of like The Lost World. Not yeah. the second Jurassic Park movie. The Arthur Conan Doyle novel. Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, yeah. you know, it's interesting because it it really does beg the question. You know, there's these animals that were thought to be myth, you know, mythical creatures. The Komodo dragon, which I've seen up close and personal, and that thing is huge. scary and huge. Beautiful creature, but huge. But Even James Bond was afraid of it. Yeah. That's when yeah. he threw that other guy at it, and he, then, you know, then it ate that man. Um, <laughs> but you have these creatures which were thought to have been lore, and now they're real. So it makes you wonder, what about all the obscure cryptids, the ones that there are there is no proof other than conjecture or fuzzy photos or things of that sort? You know, could it potentially be that those things are real? We just haven't found the evidence yet. Why, David? Yes. How wonderful that you would bring that up. I know. It was almost as if I planned it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, since I was a kid, there was one of these cryptids that really stood out in my mind. And Bigfoot is one of them. But when I was younger, even more so was the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Oh, of course. And I think the Loch Ness Monster was so interesting to me as a child because, like many kids my age, I was in love with dinosaurs. I thought dinosaurs were the coolest thing on the planet, even though they were long extinct. I just thought they were absolutely amazing. I watched every documentary I could. My parents bought me all sorts of books on dinosaurs, not unlike a lot of other kids that are out there. Uh, I even wanted to be a paleontologist up to a certain point, and then I fell in love with Egypt and said, sorry, paleontology, I have a new love. But to me, well, Nessie... Well, you're, you're still digging. You're just, instead of digging up bones, you're digging up artifacts. Well, actually, some of the greatest dinosaur fossils in the world come from Egypt. 
Ah, true story. So, nerds on history. I will tell you that... Uh, it's like worse than hashtagging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hashtag nerds on history. <laughs> so, You're not supposed to say that in real life. <laughs> people do, though. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> so when it comes down to wanting to believe that this was real, I was 100% behind it. And a lot of people were right there with me and had been since the 1930s. Some of them went back even further, back to the 6th century. So St. Columba, back in the 6th century, is one of the first recorded stories of an individual who was said to have encountered the Loch Ness Monster. And it's quite an amazing tale, right? Of course, it's, it's told with a bit of a grain of salt. I don't know how much I really put too much faith in this. But apparently, the, uh, the creature attacked a man who was out on the, uh, out on the loch, and uh, St. Columba comes to the rescue and makes a sign of the cross and scares away the beast into the depths of the loch and saves the day. Uh, but records being seen a very large aquatic creature that had a long neck, right, and a small head and a large body, and all these kind of characteristics that has become associated with the Loch Ness Monster. And as time went on, we find more and more accounts of this. The Spicer's account from 1933 is probably one of the most modern ones. So this talks about a sighting on July 22nd, 1933, uh, when George Spicer and his wife were in their car driving down the road. And rather than seeing this creature in the water, they instead saw it on land. And it was crossing on land across the road, back into the water. And they again described it as having a, uh, a very large body, being perhaps about four feet high and 25 feet long, so that's including the tail, having a long, very narrow, uh, slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk neck. So this is the description that they're, they're giving. And it had kind of this undulating movement that it made with its, like, flippers in order to kind of move haphazardly on land. Almost kind of like a walrus. Yeah, exactly. If you kind of yeah. imagine or a like walrus's a, movement. Or like an elephant seal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, kind of scooting on its belly. Yeah. And this is a uh, description that continues on quite frequently up until around the 1960s or so when a lot of the stories started to die off a bit. So, what are we to believe from this? Are we to believe that there is a dinosaur? In this case, the most likely candidate would probably be the plesiosaur. And do we believe that it actually lives... And a Scottish lock. Yes. The, well, there's a Discovery Channel special on this, and it was inconclusive with it being able to find evidence of Nessie, as we have now grown to call it. I 100% think that Nessie is real. I think that if a coelacanth or crocodiles, creatures who exhibit dinosaur-like traits have survived over the last 65 million years. Mm -hmm. It would be completely arrogant of us not to believe that Nessie or a plesiosaur would be alive either in a lock or in Salt Lake or in the in, you know Lake Tahoe <coughs> or in Champ or Camp Champ Champ from uh, Lake Champlain. Lake Champlain. I mean, it, it kind it, of a cousin to the Loch Ness monster, right. but of a similar species. I mean, it's just it—it's too ridiculous to think that that's not possible. Yeah, well, it goes back to what we've talked about several times in the show: the mongoose equation. Everything is possible. We just need to figure out how. Mm -hmm. What's the right? What's uh, the level of probability? What's right? level? And what's the algorithm for getting there? Well, here's another one. Let's let's extrapolate on this because you mentioned Saint Columba, and which is now a legend that you they've associated with the life of the saint. 
and seeing this monster, I'll throw St. George at you for a second. Now, why is St. George important? Because he also encountered the Loch Ness Monster. The famous story of a knight saving a maiden who is kidnapped by a... Loch Ness Monster. Dragon. Dragon. No, it's Loch Ness Monster. Oh, dragon. Oh, it is dragon. Retold in the movie Shrek, for example, Mm -hmm. derives from the story of St. George. Dragons are real, too. Yes. Well, so (laughs) here's what I'm getting at, because we we draw the line of where does cryptozoology end, and where does it just mythical creatures? Most cryptozoologists would never give credence to the idea that the dragon might be a creature that really exists. And yet there's been legends about it in both Western and Eastern cultures for centuries. In this case, it's an allegory for, because the dragon is meant to be a symbol for the devil. It was described in Revelation that the devil would take the form of a, of a beast, and they used the word dragon in more recent translations of it. So, in this case, it's more pointed and more religious and political. But it does beg the question, I think, though, why, why do some creatures not qualify as cryptozoological creatures when there has been all this about them. Well, things like the dragon, you have to wonder where the idea of a dragon came from. Right. Someone had to have given birth to that idea and given birth to the to the concept of what it would look like, a winged beast with fire coming out of its mouth and massive tail and very aggressive. So someone, either who was really creative or saw a creature that resembled that at some point in time or in history, took that and then it got passed into legend. Or saw the fossilized remains of a creature that perhaps inspired it. Like a dinosaur, for Like a dinosaur. Because keep in mind, ancient man had been quarrying stone for thousands of years. And it is not, again, beyond the realm of possibility because we know that there are many dinosaur fossils that are found in Egypt. There are many dinosaur fossils that are found all throughout Europe that is was not, again, beyond the realm of possibility that these people encountered fossils and helped inspire these stories. So you think it could be possible they found the remains of, let's say, was a brachiosaurus. And they're like, oh, this must have been some giant lizard. And then they found the remains of the fossils of pterodactylings, and they put the two together and realizing that maybe these were the wings of it. One or maybe there's body. one component of an inspiration and another one is just a winged creature. Winged creatures have all sorts of inspirations throughout mythological history. To me, the dragon, right, where does it tend to uh, live? Where is its domain? Where is, would it be cited most often? Folklore. Well, I, I mean, if, if you were actually in the presence of a dragon, where would you see it? In the sky. In the sky, right? Kind of hard to avoid a kind of gigantic, fire-breathing you know, lizard up in the sky. Whereas with Nessie, here's something that is submerged it comes out of the ocean, in right? a lake and only emerges from time to time in a very remote area, mind you. Loch Ness might be popular for its publicity around Nessie and as a destination spot for tourists these days. But, you know, hey, back during St. Columba, it was a remote location out in uh, Scotland. And so, I don't know, to me, I would say the dragon, just because there is no examples of where it could possibly be in the fossil record, it just doesn't quite fit the criteria. Yes. Whereas with Nessie, if we assume it's a plesiosaur, here's a creature that we actually do have in the fossil record. Now we just have to see, would Loch Ness actually support it? And if we can just kind of come full circle and circle back around, just a couple of interesting facts. Because now that I'm an adult and now that I've thought more about Nessie, and I know that you are very strong in your feelings, David, that Nessie is you know, the real deal and is in there somewhere, I'm a little more dubious I'm not 100% behind it. And Mm -hmm. the reason is because the lock itself is not the most hospitable place. It is uh, very dark. 
It is very cold. It is pretty deep. It's over 400 feet deep at its lowest point. It does have caves and areas that are along the shore there that could be places for protection. But if we're talking about a living, breeding species that has to be able to propagate, why would they choose Loch Ness? It's 56 square kilometers, so it's big, but it's not that big. And what is supporting it? There's fish in Loch Ness, right? So there's sea trout, there's brown trout, uh, there's pike, there's European eel. There are animals, there are fish in the loch. And some proponents of Nessie suggest that that would actually be enough to feed a very small you know, population of plesiosaur. But then have they been there for 65 million years? Did they 65 million years ago just decide, oh, you know, we should follow uh, Phil's uh, instructions and go into the ocean. We don't want to end up like John on the, on the land there. <laughs> and so then they go into the lock and just stay there for 65 million years? Well, it also could be stated that we don't know what Scotland looked like 65 million years ago or what that area of Scotland looked like 65 million years ago. I mean, if you think about it, it could... <clears throat> and again, I'm just being the the opposition here. Yeah, it could be that the species Plesiosaur, you know, was driven in there for some reason and found themselves trapped, and in over time learned to adapt to how the lock has grown and advanced sure. and evolved. Or um, maybe it has come out of the uh, water, and it's been just really bad timing with a human being able to come in contact with it. That goes back to. The other stories we've heard about, like not being able to see a tiger or not being able to see a panda or a giraffe. Well, here's an idea that was proposed um, a little while ago that gives me a little bit more faith in Nessie. That gives me a chance to believe it could be real. And that is that the lock itself is connected to the ocean. Now, it's connected to the ocean by the River Ness. And the river is not a huge river, right? So it's, it's pretty shallow. At its shallowest point, I think it's something like 23 feet or something like that. But there are much deeper parts to the river. We know that migration periods of certain animals is oftentimes spurred about by the instinct to breed. You know, we see this with salmon. We see this with a lot of other animals where it's hardwired into them to travel, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles to come to a certain location to breed. So maybe it's possible that a group of plesiosaurs survived the extinction period, eventually found their way up into the uh, North Atlantic Sea and up into the the Bering Strait and the areas around uh, England and what have you, and decided, okay, there's enough food for us to survive. This is a good place to go. But when it comes to mating, maybe we want to go something somewhere a little more safe and secure and travel via the River Ness. And we've already had reports of the Loch Ness Monster actually being able to get up on land and move about. So maybe under the cover of darkness, who knows, maybe it gets by those more shallow parts where people aren't looking and ends up in the lake to breed. Right. And then leaves with its young. Well, we don't know what kind of creature this is. If this is to be reptilian, then it would be birth by eggs, right? Who's to say that the mating doesn't take place in the ocean or in the, the North Atlantic Sea and then they, the, the laying egg is actually laid in a place where the current takes it into the lock? That's a good question. I, I'm not 100% sure. I could have sworn there are a few species of dinosaur that were thought to actually birth live young. And I believe they were mostly in the ocean. I think they were probably, though, the uh, ancestors of sharks and whales. I don't know if the plesiosaur was grouped into that or not. But that's okay. an interesting theory, though. Especially if the plesiosaur did, in fact, lay eggs, 
why haven't we found any Nessie eggs if, if that is a breeding ground? So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, although it could be one of those dinosaurs that did have live births. I don't know, and I don't know how they would prove that. Well, if- actually, I think they did prove it that the plesiosaur, if we're assuming that Nessie is a plesiosaur, that they did do live birth. They did. Yeah. Okay. okay, so never mind. My theory goes out the window. So. Well, the other big thing about the plesiosaur and Loch Ness is why hasn't there come out and actually been some really good videotaped or photographed evidence, especially with all the tourists who have been flocking there you know, for 40, 50 years now? Why haven't we seen anything really good? And there's been a lot of research done on the, on the lock, right? They've run a lot of sonar across it. They've done a lot of research trying to find remains or trying to find scat or trying to find something to that effect. And they just come up, like you said, with inconclusive results. There's no way to really prove that it exists or it doesn't exist, except for surgeon's the now, photo. Well, the now famous debunked and faked surgeon's photo. <gasps> I did not hear about this. Yeah. So the surgeon's photo, which was for years the smoking gun for for Nessie, right, uh, has been proven to be fake. Tell me proof. How? All right. This is it. So it's kind of an interesting story. Back in 1933, when some of the first more recent Nessie sightings were becoming popular, uh, there was this craze to try to get a picture of it or try to get some evidence of it, whether they be footprints or what have you. And so a uh, a newspaper by the name of Daily Mail decided to send a very famous kind of big game hunter. His name was, and I love this name, Marmaduke Weatherell. Great name. Uh, And they (laughs) hired him in December of 1933 uh, to go and find some proof of Nessie. And he ends up photographing and bringing back the so-called evidence, which he saw as footprints. Turns out, through closer examination, they were made by hippo prints. Now, hippos, of course, are not in Scotland. No, they're Uh, native to Africa. Exactly. And so it was believed that he was the subject of a hoax, that somebody had been tipped off that this famous person was coming there to look for it. And so they got dried hippo feet, and they used them to make the so-called tracks of the Loch Ness Monster. As far as, what about the head photo, though? Well, that's the thing. This guy was so humiliated uh, that it's believed that he wanted revenge. He wanted to have something to give them. Uh, and so he actually looks to uh, a local surgeon by the name of Colonel Robert Wilson, uh, who he convinced would be a, a good person to, to work with him, along with a, a young man by the name of Christian Sperling. Uh, so Sperling was actually uh, Weatherell's uh, stepson. So he wanted Sperling to actually create him a very convincing-looking sea serpent-like head. And they attached it to the bottom of a toy submarine. They took it out onto the lock let it float out 20, 30 feet, uh, and then snap the famous picture. And the picture that we are all familiar with is a highly cropped and blown up picture. Because if you look at it, it looks kind of blurry. That's because if you pull it back and see the full photo, you can see that it looks very, very small on the water. And you can totally tell based on the swells that are near it that this is not the giant creature that it appears to be in the photo. And this is told to us by Christian Sperling himself, who confessed this just shortly before his death at the age of 90, back in uh, 1994. And so he confessed to being part of the hoax and made the whole thing up just to get revenge on his humiliated stepfather. So for 60 years he held that secret? Yep. Wow. Held it in just before his death. Wow. So, unfortunately, some of these famous photos are, in fact... Uh, misidentifications, they're either outright hoaxes, or they're actually swells 
on the surface of the lake that have been photographed with just the right light and just the right angle to appear to be humps of a creature on the surface, just breaking the surface. Hmm. But there have been some weird stuff that has been uh, seen with sonars and what have you that could support Loch Ness Monster. So for me, I'm kind of on the fence. But again, uh, it has a little less credibility than our next candidate. Which you're referring to is none other than... Bigfoot. Yay, I love Bigfoot. Of course, our listeners are like, oh my God, come on. It's like an hour in. Get to Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah. Or the Yeti slash the Abominable Snowman. Or the Sasquatch. Or the Stink Ape of uh, Florida, Alabama. The American More, South. Yeah, the American South. Big, gotcha. big Mardi Gras goer. Loves it. <laughs> Every year. Yeah, there's a picture of him with uh, gold and purple beads. <laughs> I love king cake. That's his quote. <laughs> <laughs> Along with many other, whether they be small or large, mythical primates that have become the part of legend for cultures around the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Okay, I'm going to come flat out and say that I feel about Bigfoot how I feel about Loch Ness, where I believe that... It, that there is a potential that it has to be true just based upon all the other evidence that's around. Um, I hope that it's true because I mean, if you, if you go to YouTube and type in Bigfoot, there are millions of videos, millions of videos of people who film big, some of them horrible hoaxes and you want to write them and be like, you need to get better. A lot with of your, them. You need to be better about your, like, this is, you're wasting my time. And some of them are so good that you wonder if it's real or not. Yeah. Um, but I really hope it's true because I would love that to have that be the missing link between where man used to be and where man is now. And I'll let you kind of take off because I know you have you have a lot of notes on it. Yeah. Well, are you referring the missing link as in the link between apes and humans? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would kind of debate that. I don't well, know I mean, if Sasquatch that like, falls into that exact category any longer. I think that we've found a lot of other links that are much closer in the fossil record. Um, with Lucy? Like Lucy or other other animals going back even further, other hominids. Right. But of all of the cryptids that are out there that have yet to be proven by science, mm -hmm. I feel much like you that this one does have a lot of credibility behind it in many ways. However, I can't deny a lot of the really good arguments against Bigfoot, which, you know, they do make sense too. Which are, what are some of the arguments? So let's look at Bigfoot in particular. Let's mm -hmm. ignore some of Bigfoot's other cousins for the moment around the world. And let's look at some of the more recent sightings and the most recent location for these sightings, which is pretty much the Western United States and uh, portions of Western Canada. Uh, in fact, the Bigfoot myth if you believe it as a myth or the Bigfoot creature, however you see it, is much more familiar to the Canadians than it has been to the Americans for quite some time. The Canadians and many of the Native American tribes in those territories have extremely long-held stories of wild men and hairy men and men who are very large in size and leave behind massive quaking imprints of themselves and things of that nature. Things that we associate with Bigfoot today have been the thing of legend, very consistent legend, for a very long time. Sure, there's going to be different stories. There's going to be some that 
put it in the light of a healer or a helper. And there's many stories of Bigfoot saving children from drowning or saving them from other dangers and returning them to their families. And then there's the exact opposite. There's stories of this dangerous wild man that you want to stay away from because he'll kill you. So it goes on both sides. But they continue to talk about this large, and that's the big thing, is almost all of them are universal in its size. It's very large, wild, very hairy man. And who's very temperamental, apparently. (laughs) One way or another, he's a very emotional Bigfoot. Um, (laughs) Just having a bad day, just leave me alone. There's two sides to me. I'm like Jekyll and Hyde. (laughs) I just want to sit on my stump and just enjoy my time off, or I just got off of work. Do you know how heavy that boulder is? Do you know how heavy that boulder is? Oh, I'm sorry, Janet. Do you put food on the table? No, I do. Now go eat your venison. <laughs> Daddy, can we just... No, I, Daddy wants five minutes apiece, please. <laughs> Here, here's a stick. Go push some rocks around or something. I, 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 just, don't, I, just, I just don't care. <laughs> I, love, I love your Bigfoot going through a midlife crisis. That's great. <laughs> So, so get us, I'm going to get us a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a tattoo under your fur? What? What? I can't get a tattoo now? I, <laughs> I'm I sorry. I didn't realize you own me. <laughs> I've been trying to find a pair of driving gloves that will fit these hands. <laughs> <laughs> and then I woke up one day and I realized my hands are gloves. <laughs> Bigfoot having a midlife crisis. <laughs> Next I think, presents. <laughs> I think that's the title for the episode, right there. There, there we go. go. Great. Um, but back to back to oh, Bigfoot. Or Bigfoot is a Martian part two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, not part two. No. That didn't relate to what no, we're no, talking no, about. No, 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 no. Okay. But Bigfoot does tend to work his way into places, doesn't? Yeah, it? doesn't. It? So here's all these these myths that support Bigfoot, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the opponents to the idea of Bigfoot cite certain things. One being area and location. In the modern world today, perhaps once there was a creature such as this that existed in North America, but it couldn't possibly exist today because we have just kind of taken over the whole country, right? We have cities and we have towns and we've torn down so many natural preserves or gone in there and cut down a bunch of forests and there'd be no place for Bigfoot to live. Who's to say that we haven't endangered their habitat like we've done with so many other species? Exactly. And who's to say that Bigfoot, because... If we want to think of Bigfoot as being a hominid, right, so a creature that's coexisting alongside man who's very genetically similar to anatomically modern humans, but different, maybe he came along with everybody else. You know, when we took the Barren Land Bridge, and it's now very well accepted that most early uh, inhabitants to North America most likely use rafts and travel along the coast. We talked about this when uh, Professor Schaefer's was here. Who's to say that Sasquatch or Bigfoot or whatever you want to call it didn't also travel and migrate along the coast and come along with those people into North America. Who's to say that's not possible? Who's to say that Bigfoot didn't develop an understanding for how hostile and aggressive people can be, humans, and decided to be very elusive, knowing that that was the way that that particular species was going to continue to survive? And if that's the case, you know, the Native Americans inhabited pretty large portions of the United States before Europeans came in. Uh, they could very well have closed off certain territory that was perfect to them, that the Native Americans respected and decided, you know what, we're going to give this creature its space. We understand and respect its strength and power. We don't want to anger it, so we're going to be over here, and Bigfoot can be over here. And maybe that's just how this species then continued to exist in these small, isolated groups. Is this impossible? 
I, I don't think so. I mean, look at Africa. Look at the habitations of the gorilla. Very small areas compared to the rest of the continent, right? Mm -hmm. Compared to America, it's still pretty big size. But at the same time, um, it would be, I think, probably co comparable to the amount of space that uh, that the Bigfoot is oftentimes cited as being an inhabitant of, right? So mm -hmm. Western United States and Western Canada. Yeah. So I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility. How about sustaining that, though? So we're talking about a food source that it needs to have, a sustainable food source. Well, I think that, real quickly, just to piggyback on what you just said about, you know, a habitat, while the U.S. may not have as many forests or wooded areas anymore because of all of our growth and expansion, if you go into Canada, especially on the on the eastern side or on the western side of Canada, there are tons of forests. There is just acres upon acres where it could be a hundred percent realistic to see that that could be their habitat yeah that maybe they migrated north when they realized that a lot of their habitat in the in the u.s was kind of going you know to the you know and guess what large portions of northern california oregon state and washington state are also heavily wooded areas mm -hmm. Good right point but the other question would be what would be its food source right so you would have to assume woodland creatures or if there is a small body of water maybe fish Arby's. <laughs> Picnic backs, baskets. <laughs> you have to excuse me. I'm having a really bad cold. Uh, I would like the beefy one, the beefy with cheese sandwich. <laughs> Is that the one's called? Yeah, I'll have one of those. Uh, and a large. Janice, what do you want? One no, of those. Janice, I'm ordering right now. <laughs> and, a large, and a large one of those cuppy things full of the. The brown so, so, soda, soda, yeah. One of those. <laughs> Do you accept uh, wood chips as currency? <laughs> uh, certain parts of California, I think that would actually be commonplace at most drive throughs <laughs> Humboldt County, to be specific. Yeah. <laughs> See you later, Howard. <laughs> Okay, thank you for giving me the redwood chips. I really appreciate it. You gave him some really strong pot. Are you sure he's going to be okay? Oh, he'll be fine. <laughs> so, well, okay. When a local drive through attendant died. <laughs> when it comes to food, let's look at another large omnivorous creature that inhabits the Western United States and Canada. Bears. You'd saying that Bigfoot eats bears? No, I said, the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying that if bears can exist and continue to breed, right, and can find food, why can't Bigfoot do it? Well, it would probably be stand to reason that Bigfoot's diet probably goes off of berries or plant life, and if he's going to go for a protein source, likely fish or small creatures or like small uh, creatures, yeah. possums or. You know, I'm sure squirrels wouldn't provide much meat, but there are, are larger mammals that are out there that could be a, a food source. And who's to say that uh, this primate doesn't store fat and save fat for times when it doesn't have a lot of food, like in the winter? Much like a bear would. Much like a bear would. In or those conditions, caveman. you kind of have to. A caveman? I'm just saying, like, our ancestors, they didn't eat that much, so they... Okay, good point. So, you know... I they... wouldn't use the word caveman, but okay. Fine, sorry. Our ancestors... Thank you. Sorry. Our early ancestors, when it was hunting and gathering, um, you would have to have berries and the occasional meat when you could, but mostly you had to prepare your body for times where it wasn't going to eat. So the, the metabolism of our ancestors developed in that sense. 
Thank you so much for bringing that up. That was the point I was going to bring up. And Yay, that is that's fantastic. a big smart. That's a big smart. <laughs> you say lots of things that are smart. Albeit say, a lot of them are about Catholics, but... <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bigfoot's Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> they have found rosaries nearby its footprints. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyhow. Clearly this beast must have been in the middle of a Hail Mary when something spooked him. <laughs> Okay, so so we established, okay, ancient man has a proven record to be able to survive in small groups, mm-hmm. to be nomadic, to be a hunter-gatherer, okay. and to avoid predators. That's the point. Bigfoot could very well see us as predators. Isn't able to avoid us all the time if you believe eyewitness testimony, which there is quite a bit of it, particularly from people who are driving. So they're driving through these roads that have been cut out through a lot of this forest that is still pretty dense. You know, if you walked off the road and walked out into that forest, there's a good chance you could get lost and die. Who's to say that there aren't those creatures out there and that they're crossing in front of our roads and we're seeing them more and more now because we have more and more roads. So I don't really see that whole densification argument as really holding much weight. If anything, it's just increasing the possibility that we might actually encounter and perhaps kill one of these creatures. And that brings me to my next big point. Harry and the Hendersons. Exactly. No. (laughs) But what... Was actually a documentary. (laughs) Why haven't we found the remains of not only a Bigfoot, who has recently died, but a Bigfoot in the fossil record? Well, is it could be because its skeletal structure is so close to man that we wouldn't be able to tell the difference? Well, if we're talking that this thing is like 6 to 10 feet tall... You're going to notice in the in the bone structure that it is not human, possibly, or at least not of a regular human's girth. The reason why I think is because we aren't looking in the right spots. Bigfoot understands the value of cremation. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot actually observes the Viking death. <laughs> You ever wonder why Canada has so many forest fires? It's because they're lighting a boat on fire. <laughs> like, like, just look at some of these plenty of we gotta get this right. <laughs> no, I think it's because that no no, we've not actually been looking we're looking for evidence for a live Bigfoot. There's a TV show that's entirely dedicated to this called Finding Bigfoot on the Animal Planet show. Or I will talk discover- about that in a moment. Okay. But the point is, though, is that the point of that show and the point of what a lot of theorists have is that they're looking for a live Bigfoot. Not once have you ever heard of, oh, I'm going to go out and venture into the woods to try to find a burial ground for Bigfoot. Or I'm going to try to go find remains of a Bigfoot. I mean, excuse me, there is a, there's a, there's a story here that if, uh, on July 9th, 2008... Two men by the name of Rick Dyer and Matthew Witten posted a video on YouTube claiming they had discovered the body of a dead Sasquatch in the forest in northern Georgia. Tom Piscardi, who who apparently has some affiliation to SasquatchDetective.com, bit into this and gave them $50,000 on good faith to deliver the body to Mm -hmm. him. They put the body on ice. They send it in a cooler bait or a cooling uh, mechanism. Sent it out to him. They let it thaw out, and they come to find out that the hair is not real. The head is hollow, and the feet was made of rubber. I remember this very clearly. I was having my lunch break when I was back working at the uh, Egyptian Museum, and I was browsing the internet, looking at the news page, and I found Bigfoot remains found. 
and I damn near dropped my salad on the ground. I got very excited. <laughs> and as I continued to read the article, I came across the picture and I looked at it. I don't remember what my exact words were, but it was enough for the person who was in the museum store who was right adjacent to it to come into the come in there and actually say, "Oh my god, what's wrong?" Because I was really upset. <laughs> <laughs> just it's one of those things where it's this quiet sound, almost like you can imagine Beethoven playing in the background. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> it may have been along those lines of wow. was, yeah and um was, it was horrible because the article had the picture like halfway down once they had given you all the good juicy bits and you look at it you're like how is anyone this stupid this is a costume with like beef that they bought at the store like hanging out of it this is stupid now granted i'm looking at a website called beefro.net Yes, um, but they the BRFO, the Bigfoot uh, Field Research Organization, right? And they they asked that they asked that very question of why haven't we found the remains of Bigfoot that died of natural causes? The short answer because we had never looked for these kinds of remains. And you know what? That is an interesting argument because if you look at any remains as they die out in any forest around the United States or Canada, they decay very very quickly. You're right. And it is not uncommon for scavengers to come and then pick away at the at the bones. That's why when we find the disarticulated remains of many of our ancient human ancestors or other hominids, we find them very fragmented. We find only little bits and pieces of them. We don't usually find a whole skeleton together. And when we do, we have to work really hard to piece it back together. Even Lucy, which is an amazing example, was also highly fragmented. So she was in great condition, but there have been whole genus of species based on far less fossil evidence. Sometimes just the mandibles of the jaw is all that's necessary to classify it as a new species. So, um, you know, we're not finding a whole lot. There it is. Do you see yeah. what I mean? So here, so this is the holding actual, up the picture. I, I found the photo of what, uh, of the Bigfoot remains, and it, seriously, it seriously looks like they had, they, they went to a costume shop and robbed it, shoved it into a cooler, <laughs> And hoped, first of all, the head and the body, the way that the head is contorted with the body, makes it seem like, oh, there's no skeleton whatsoever in yep. this. <laughs> they didn't even bother trying to put it on a mannequin or putting it on one of the guys and just say, hold really still, okay, Bob? Don't move. You're probably going to die. <laughs> they could have just, like, you know, robbed a morgue, gotten, like, Brick Baker just to do, like, 12 hours of makeup. <laughs> Hi, Rick. Do you want to like lose all credibility for your career? Because we have a really big proposition for you. Rick Baker, for those who don't know, is an Academy Award winning makeup artist. He's done tons and tons of amazing makeup work throughout film. You can look him up on IMDb. That's why I referenced him. Proceed. Sorry. No, it's fine. I just, you know, I look at that picture and I and I think back to that moment when I screamed at the break. I saw that picture. I was like, are you serious? I felt bad for that dude drop 50k because he just got i have no sympathy for him he should have waited until he had the remains to give them any sort of compensation did he, did for he it. get the money back at all i think so i don't think they accepted the money and what i think he should do is turn around and double that amount and then donate that uh to some sort of charity to make up for his stupidity because that's just ridiculous <laughs> i'm sorry i feel very i i was really pissed man i can see why this <laughs> looks so ridiculous to believe. and they stole that away from me so, okay, so we're talking about the remains of Bigfoot, right? 
Yeah, I mean, remains do get picked away by scavengers. That's not uncommon for especially a lot of the smaller bones to be taken by porcupines who use them to gnaw on their uh, incisors to keep them under control and other rodents. Uh, and so, I'm sorry, I, I don't really buy that. I sure as hell wish we had found something in the fossil record, however, that would date it a lot more recently. Because the only real contender in the fossil record for what could be Bigfoot is Gigantopithecus. And Gigantopithecus, which was kind of grouped into this whole thing a few years ago, has more or less kind of been now thought unlikely. Uh, it was a hominid. We only have very small pieces of it, however, so we're basing this pretty much just on its jawbones that have been discovered. But it was in uh, Southeast Asia. It could have moved up along the, the barren land strait, which is what they're, they've talked about, and evolved into what is what we think of as Bigfoot. The only problem is this creature was massive. It was probably not so much a hominid as it was a primate. And it also is most likely believed to have knuckle-walked or walked in all fours, not unlike a gorilla. Based just off the jawbone? I don't know exactly how they do it, but anthropologists can do amazing work. I mean, I guess if the jawbone resembled more of that, of like a gorilla, I guess that would make sense. But And I think that's kind of where they were going with it, too. It, yeah. it was very, very primate-like in, in like a gorilla. Case in point, it is still highly speculative. It is. Okay. And I would, however, love to have that little bit of evidence to say, just like the coelacanth, okay, hey, look, we just found a fossil. It's the first fossil we've found in 65 million years since it went extinct. Uh, and now, 50 years later, 100 years later, okay, guess what? We found the real thing. That would be so cool. And if we actually found a fossil that, you know, made sense in the, in the sense of Bigfoot, oh, gosh, that would be great. But keep in mind where we find a lot of hominid fossils. We find them in places that are now barren deserts that were once lush forests with water sources. And a lot of that, uh, those fossils are now being just kind of moved up through the land's movement and through erosion and through all sorts of other means and coming to the surface. That's where we find a lot of them. Are you going to find that in North America? Not unless you go specifically looking for it. Right. So, again, both sides of the argument. I don't know. Still on the fence of Bigfoot, but I want to believe. What do you guys think? Exactly. Oh, before we get into that, I have to talk about hunting Bigfoot. Is that what it's called? Finding Bigfoot. Finding Bigfoot on, on I think it's on the animal planet. Yeah. When this was first announced... I was super excited. I thought, cool, this is what we need. We need some television company to put some money behind the idea to get some people out there in the field and start doing some more serious field research. I want to see some real science. And who do they pick? Matt Moneymaker. That is his real name, by the way. He did not make up this name. He was born into this name. But I hate you, Matt Moneymaker. Wow. Wow. You're going to have to explain that. That's a galvanizing statement right there. Matt Moneymaker makes a mockery of the science that is involved in potentially trying to prove this creature. And through his actions, is doing so much more harm than he is good. I will admit that the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, the organization that he is president of and, and co-founder of, has a pretty interesting website. They've got a lot of very valuable uh, first-person testimony that I think is unfortunately so very well overlooked, but it is full of some really great gems. Um, they make reference to some pretty good information for the most part, but this guy goes on TV 
and makes a whole joke out of it. This show is ridiculous. And I understand that a lot of these TV shows that are on there need to have that kind of pitch. They need to have some kind of silly person An angle on there. to it, yeah. But there's a point where you're just taking it too far, and now you're detracting from the real science of it. And when you go as far as to more or less fabricate evidence to go ahead and take what are probably bears or probably other animals that could be pretty easily identified and try to turn those around and tell us that those are, you know, Bigfoot or Sasquatch that you're just inches away from really upsets me. And I I don't like this guy. I think that he's been involved far too often. He does come into the picture for these hoaxes that pop up, right? He always then distances himself and says, oh, well, I never really took uh, any part in it. I wasn't involved in it. I just wanted to check it out just like you guys are. But um, I'm so upset with this show. And it's had four seasons now. And they could have done something so interesting. Hmm. But guess what? They're probably not going to find Bigfoot in the first four, eight, ten seasons of the show. Who knows? So what are they going to put on TV? Bunch of people out there looking for Bigfoot. Would I be interested in watching it? Sure. Would the average Joe who just wants to see... You know, maybe see a monster on TV. That's the target audience they're well, shooting they're for. Trying, they're trying to sell a product, and oh, makes me it's so interesting. Angry. I did go to B- BFRO's website just to kind of wrap up here. There have been three reports in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Yes, near us. One back in April 1958, a man describes possible sighting during childhood in Hinkley Basin. I don't know the fact that they like recall it many years later. Uh, one in 1980 of October, nighttime sighting by motorists near Mount Madonna Park in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Right near And spring 1998 through 2004, family has sightings and encounters in Santa Cruz Mountains. So it's very vague uh, about the sightings, but it's interesting. You guys should check it out. It's uh, bfro.net, and you can kind of peruse and look at your local areas. And there's a whole lot of things that we didn't get to, like the uh, Patterson video which is probably the most famous piece of footage of a supposed Bigfoot. The the, the very first video of yeah. a Bigfoot. Which is highly debated. It's gone back and forth many times over the past 15 years with people saying it was a hoax, and they admitted it. And they say, no, they didn't. That was actually the hoax. Uh, so we don't know if it's a hoax. We don't know if it's real. And there's been lots of scientific examination of the footage, and every different expert you talk to has a different opinion. One's going to say... Oh, this is a perfect example of a primate locomotion unknown to us. It must be something unique to nature. And then there's the other side that say, oh, no, this is clearly a, a guy in a monkey suit. So I don't care about the video. It's not even in my mind. I'm thinking about the other stuff that we've talked about. And again, I'm still on the fence. I'm not going to say that I believe in Bigfoot because I'm sorry I don't have all the evidence in front of me. Right. But of all the cryptids of everything we've talked about today that could be real... I think that Bigfoot's got a much better chance than a lot of the others. Uh, and we didn't even talk about some of the more ridiculous ones, like these giant bats uh, that pop up all around the world. There's all sorts of reports of the giant man-eating bats that come down and pick people up and carry them whoa, away. Whoa, 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 whoa. We already know that one. Okay, That's sorry. Batman. Thank <laughs> it's Batman. you. That's right. The Batman. We didn't talk about the Chupacabra, which, in my opinion, is a very minor cryptid. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't believe in the Chupacabra. It's only been reported since about 1995, and it's... First reportings in Puerto Rico are highly suspicious. Uh, Since then, in the southwest of the United States and in Mexico, all the other reports have turned out to be dogs. All these videos and pictures, they're mangy dogs that are sickly. 
some of them have probably bred with coyotes, so they look All kind of right, weird. Southwest region of America. If you're listening to our podcast, light them up. Tell us your thoughts. <laughs> right. Well, you know, nerds, let's put it out there. Do you want us to do a part two on this and continue this subject and cover the creatures that we have not yet covered? Please let us know. And honestly, I want to believe. I want to see proof. Here's two things that I think that we could do right now to try to prove or completely disprove the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot to end with. And I think these should be Kickstarter projects. I think somebody should do this. One, put a series of very high-resolution day and nighttime cameras on the River Ness. If there is anything going in and out of the lock, let's go ahead and videotape it. Don't put webcams on the actual lake itself. I don't care about that as much. I want to see if the River Ness has any activity. Because that, for me, would be the most likely place to be able to spot something. And there has been sightings along the River Ness as well. You mean like do like time-lapse photography? Or a live video feed. You could get a live cam set up there anytime. And then for Bigfoot, right into the animal planet and tell them finding Bigfoot is insulting. I want to actually see some real science. Take it to Discovery or whatever you know, other channels owned by your major conglomerate that owns you and tell them to put on a much more serious scientific investigation of Bigfoot. Give it some money. Let's see if we can find some remains and focus on trying to find remains and not walking around in the you know jungle, hitting trees with baseball bats and making bizarre comments while you, you walk. Have you seen the show? It's freaking ridiculous. No. Don't. It's stupid. Um, <laughs> those are two things that we could do right now. And with that... I rest my cases. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Oh. This has definitely been a very interesting topic to It's <clears> certainly discuss. been, I think, the most unique episode of Nerds on History we've done. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Definitely. Folks, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to us through either iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Uh, you may also listen to our sister podcast, which David and I co-host with, it, with our friend Sarah, Nerds on Film, also available on iTunes. And when you listen to either one of those, please, please, please leave a review. Uh, oh, by doing yeah. that, that allows us to get a little bit more exposure, and it allows us to garner a little bit more oomph, as you will, so that way we can produce more content for you. Please give us your reviews. Please give us your listener feedback, which you can find as a button on our website, nerdonomy.com. And also, don't forget to head over to our Facebook pages. They're a great way to interact with us. Most of our dedicated fans continually send us messages through that. Enjoy you know, articles that we post on there. So go ahead and give us a like. We're really easy to find. Either Nerds on History or Nerds on Film. And of course, if you want to follow our daily updates, you can follow us on Twitter, at Nerdonomy. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. We Absolutely. always love to have you as a guest host. This one was fun. This was, was a lot of fun. fun. Yeah. yeah, this was a cool one. Yeah. We will see you next week. We'll see you next week. Same third time, same third channel. Bye, guys. Bye, Aunt Teresa. Bye.